Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health Welcome and well-being are important, we so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Veterinary technician Tim Hayes and Dr. Kyle Morano. Thanks for joining me, guys. We have a great show for you today. We will be talking with Dr. Kelly Karens, who is an expert in internal medicine, and we get to pick her brain about diabetes. After that, I will tell you about our product of the week and how it can make a difference in your pet's lives. We're so happy to have all our listeners here with us today and downloading our podcast version of our show. We're so grateful for your continued support, and we love sharing thoughts and our expertise with you each week. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or topic ideas, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear your feedback. You are welcome and encouraged to email me anytime at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Let's start in our animal news this morning with our segment, the Chicago Tribune. All right. I'm sorry, guys. I know I wanted to do the daily meow again, McCarthy, but I, I really, you know, we have, you know, 90% dog, dog listeners. So they wanted, <laughs> we couldn't keep going with that one. All right. So what do we got? All right, so back on the COVID case. So uh, my article was China removes animal linked to coronavirus from list of traditional medicine. Um, so the latest version of Chinese government compilation of drugs used for Chinese and Western medicine no longer contains the animal pangolins. Um, basically, I would describe the pangolins as a mix of kind of an anteater and armadillo. Um, Super cute. Super cute. So cute. <laughs> Pangolins are poached um, for their meat, which apparently is a delicacy, and their scales for traditional medicine in, in China and other Asian countries. This decision to remove them from the list comes after research suggests that pangolins kept in wet markets in China may have facilitated incubation of COVID-19. The pangolin is the most illegally traded wild mammal in the world. Not only were they removed from the list of medicine um, source, but also upgraded from second class to first class protected animals due to their rapidly decreasing population. Um, this is an example of one instance you don't want to be upgraded to first class. <laughs> more than 200,000 pangolins are consumed annually and authorities seized more than 130 tons of pangolin related products last year. Um, their scales, which they are also poached for, are made of keratin, which is just like a human fingernail. Um, but Chinese medicine claims that they improve blood circulation and decrease inflammation. Um, so I'm a little unclear if they used uh, decreased uh, them or took them off that list because of that they are more endangered than they were before, or if it was related actually to their role in the COVID-19 virus. But I guess it could be a combination of the two. Um, but it is interesting that, that, again, they're still taking steps to try to reduce wet market uh, and illegal trade in China um, to kind of help with overall public health. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I just I, I like these, you know, common sense, I don't know, if it's legislation or rulings. I'm not really sure. Whatever China did exactly. I'm just glad that they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're doing that. All right. Uh, the, but again, continued the use of these animals for medicine has always been a little sketchy to me. All right. Because again, I, I really don't get what exactly and how they work. Okay. For, you know, like the same thing goes with like rhino horns and elephant tusks and those type of things. It's just, I'm not saying they don't work. I just wish we could understand how they work and what they're supposed to be curing because there must be other options, you know what I mean, to help, you know, healing, you know, 
for people to help with them, their healing. Okay. Apparently you I use human fingernails. For I know. It. <laughs> exactly. All right? I'm just, I just have a hard time with these animals being killed for treatment like these and being used in traditional, like, you know, for used for, you know, as a tradition rather than as in, than in research. And so again, good on China. I just hope that this, uh, obviously this type of, um, you know, slaughtering of animals obviously stops and hopefully continues to, so we can grow this population. You know, I think the good thing is just every, every now and again, obviously this coronavirus has been really difficult on, on nearly everybody, but every now and again, you get just these moments of, Hey, here's something good that's come out of it. And, and, and it just gives you that little bit of hope, that little bit of optimism of, man, you know, we're going to get through this and we're going to be better off in certain areas because of it. And this is just one really small way that we can look at that and just, just look at the bright side. Um, and today is just a good moment, moment for that as well. No, I totally agree. You're absolutely right, Kyle. And then that's a good thing that we have been able to see with COVID, the amount of things that we've had to adapt and change. And again, right, you're exactly right. I mean, hopefully this creates a little bit more change for the better. And, you know, and we are looking at a lot of good things that are occurring during this very, very t- trying times. All right, Kyle, what do we got? Well, after that moment of optimism, we're going we're gonna to turn this <laughs> down, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, so the the article that we we looked in that I looked into is about a plane from um, Ukraine to Canada that carried uh, about a hundred French bulldog puppies, and unfortunately, thirty eight were found dead on arrival. Um, and just the description is really is really tough, um, with just po- probable packing too tight. Not hoarding is not the right word, but that's the only word that I could describe when I saw these pictures. Um, and it was really just. It was tough to tough to deal with and tough to tough to think about. Man, that's that's a twelve-hour flight from Ukraine over to Toronto, and these puppies, based on the pictures, you know, no more than about eight eight or so weeks of age, and just to be in that stressful environment, no no matter what, let alone the health concerns um, that these guys went through, because a bunch of them were really sick with vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration, um, and my guess would bet would be that these guys were diagnosed with um, parvo, which is a virus that hits um, younger dogs very, very commonly. So it's, you know, this happened just a couple of days ago. So there's still a lot of investigation that's going on, but I think it speaks to just, man, changes that need to take place on a regulation level um, everywhere. And just quite frankly, there was a lack of common sense of, okay, let's take a hundred puppies who and then you're going to put them in a crate for 12 hours. Like I wouldn't even do that at my house, let exactly. alone put them in the cargo area of a plane. So tough story. Um, I hope that some changes are going to take place because of this and, um, and, and something will improve. I agree. I mean, this is, again, <clears throat> I'm a little biased in this, but this is primarily to me an airline case where I feel the negligence uh, is the fault of the airline. The conditions in in I guess in the cargo are really not suitable for pets, and to be to be in or you know they should be better regulated. I know that when I get my bag sometimes off of like the plane, they're extremely cold, and I can't imagine like that a puppy would be able to be you know in that type of environment. Uh, if pets travel in the cargo area, an airline really should make it safe and in a better climate controlled, so you know pets are you know comfortable and safe. Again. Like you said, Kyle, there's definitely a lot more investigating going on as to what happened exactly. Um, but I do feel like some of these things just need to be um, looked at. <clears throat> and I, I do think, again, airline needs to at some point have to have, to have a little bit uh, of responsibility and understanding, you know, that pets should not <clears throat> maybe be even put in that type of situation. 
Um, but also when I was reading that article, Kyle, what what was the role about the mob play that the oh, mob yeah. might play in the first <laughs> oh, bulldog God. trade? Listen, I, mean, I cho- it's getting I just, really serious if the breed is so popular with the mob. I'm like, yeah, what's going yeah. on? Yeah, I just chose not to read it out of fear that the mob would come after me because <laughs> I read it. The contour just blew our cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So very good. So Tim, yeah, what do you got for us today? Oh, I'm sorry, Elaine. I was gonna say I think the onus is also on the people that are selling these animals also. You think about all the all the pet stores that are selling animals, they have no idea really where they're where they're coming from, or honestly, I don't think they in a lot of cases care with the condition of the animals prior to getting them. They just want to get sell those puppies and get more money out of it. So there's also that to think about of when you are buying an animal, do it responsibly and actually look into where you're getting it from. Absolutely. Because again, like Kyle said, I mean, if these, these pets all had maybe like a parvo or something like that as well. I mean, these pets need to be hopefully looked at and have like a clear bill of health before. And I'm, I'm hoping that I think a lot of these, you know, require that, you know, they have some kind of records uh, that they've been seen, hopefully medically, so that they're safe to travel, you know, and so I'm hoping that airlines will take those types of measures. And I think some of them are. And so so that we can make sure that the you know, pets are um, safe when they're traveling. All right, Kyle. What do you, I mean, Tim, what do you got for us? Uh, so I've got some sad news out of Racine, Wisconsin. Um, authorities there were investigating an animal hoarding situation and ended up rescuing 33 Yorkshire Terriers from a um, pub, you know, private home. Uh, two of them were, were recently deceased puppies. Um, and I'd like to point out too, I, I, I'm usually given the silly kind of lighthearted stories. So I, I can only assume this means that Contreras read this article and thought, hysterical, this is perfect for Tim. Uh, really sick sense of humor. Um, Contreras' horrible sense of humor aside, though, um, the, the good news is that with the exception of the two deceased puppies, which I, I'm hoping was as simple a case as two puppies that just didn't survive the birthing process, which e- even in perfect situations does happen. Um, so I, I'm hoping it's something that that's simple, um, not something more sinister. Um, but aside from the two uh, deceased puppies, the dogs did seem to be in relatively good health physically. Um, they all got checked out by a vet and, you know, there was some hair matting, there were some ear infections. But again, in, in any group of 33 dogs, you're, you're going to see matting and, and ear infections. So it, fortunately, in this case, they seem to have been relatively well cared for. It obviously doesn't speak to any of the behavioral issues, any of the stresses of, of living in a, a hoarding situation. Um, but, you know, in cases like this, it's really just a matter of time before you do start seeing health issues, before, you know, the people's resources run out or before they get even more animals that they just end up being overwhelmed by. Um, and that's the sad part of these stories. Well, I mean, there's a lot of sad parts of this story, but uh, the, the sad, you know, is, is usually people in these situations start out with good intentions. There are people who do genuinely love dogs and or cats and think that they're helping them think that they're providing them a good home and just end up way in over their head and and can't kind of see that themselves. Um, Typically also it's tied to some sort of mental wellness issue on their part. Um, And, you know, it's common. We, we see it on a smaller scale too at every animal hospital. Um, You know, we, we've got people who they take good care of their pets. They're, they're wonderful people, but they just seem to keep accumulating pets. And 
you start getting worried. You start seeing cracks starting to form where you're, you know, they're, they're just not going to be able to care for these animals if, if they get another one or another two or, you know. Um, and so, you know, if you suspect somebody is hoarding animals, get involved, get the authorities involved. It's, you, you know, the animals are suffering, but in all likelihood, the person is suffering as well. Um, the article makes the argument where there is animal suffering, there is human suffering. And I, I think that's true. I don't, I don't think you end up with 33 Yorkies in your house unless you're in a, a pretty unhealthy place yourself or you're like a rich eccentric person like Prince. Like if, if you had told me Prince had like 33 Yorkies, I, I mean, that, that's probably fine. They're probably, but the average person, when you get to 33 Yorkies, there, there's something wrong. There's something, you know, unhealthy there. So um, yeah, just uh, keep an eye out and, and make sure you're, you're taking care of the people and the animals around you. Absolutely. So Tim, I, mean, I agree because hoarding again is a very serious like condition, I think. I mean, it's just because people perceive themselves as saving these pets from like death and providing them food and shelter. Again, just another problem is that and they adopt these animals and form like these bonds with them and they just can't imagine ever giving them up at that point. Yeah. And so that becomes that, that attachment is extremely strong, but it's unfortunately it's troublesome because it's very difficult for hoarders is, you know, because it's very difficult because hoarding is a form of animal abuse. In most cases, these pets are unkempt, you know, um, and unkempt conditions and, you know, competing for resources. And so, um, you know, which creates a very dangerous situation between pets. Another problem, a potential and very real problem uh, with hoarding is like, you know, the risk of infectious diseases because many, many times these pets are not, they're just not brought, you know, you know, for medical care. And so, you know, so without that, again, they're basically they're coming in contact with all these other pets, and uh, there's a huge, huge, you know, obviously issue there um, amongst that population. Again, I just um, I really have a hard time, you know, confronting owners um, with hoarding because I see them because I see them when they're getting treatment for their pets, but then when when the owner has you know whatever like you know ten dogs and ten cats, you know, I'm you know I'm only seeing two of them. I'm, right. you know, I have to like, again, that, that's tough. And I have to ask them about their other pets. And I, most of the time I get that, oh, I go to like a vaccine clinic, all my, so all my pets are fine. And so it, it creates, a, you know, an extremely difficult, but these things, Tim, you were 100% right. I mean, when we see these things, you know, again, we have to try to investigate, you know, some way. And, and many times, you know, we need to maybe, you know, get, possibly get law enforcement involved if we think that there's possible you know, um, negligence or, you know, these pets are not, you know, of the other pets are not being, you know, being seen. So it, it makes it, it is really, really hard to be able to, I know, do that many times because I know these pet, these owners perceive themselves as helping their pets. Um, but again, they're just putting these pets in really, really tough situations. And the thing is that we've all, I know we've all seen it, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I like, I, I think there's a couple couple things here. Number one, I like how our go-to eccentric rich person is Prince. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. <yeah. laughs> um, so I'd love to see what Tim's uh, record collection, and I know it's a record collection based on that comment. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'll reiterate the same thing. It's just, it takes, a, it takes a, a large amount of courage to confront that person, whether it's us in the veterinary field, whether it's your neighbor, your friend, um, and it's tough. It's tough to put yourself out there and put yourself on the line for these animals. But the rewards for both that person who needs help, you know, Tim, I think really articulated that well, that that person needs help too, as well as these animals. 
right? That's our responsibility. That's our responsibility to that person, to those animals, and to the society that we've chosen to live in. So if you think that, be bold. Um, be bold in either confronting that person or even contacting your animal control. That's what these guys do, and they're really good at it. Um, so don't be, don't be afraid and be courageous if you, if you think that situation is out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I got some good, good news here. All right. So again, because we have two groups, all right, you know, zoo owners, all right, and animal rights groups. These are two, really, there's two groups at the totally extreme opposites of their, um, you know, how they perceive animals should be treated and, you know, housed and, uh, and their well-being. Okay. So these groups have really been at each other for forever. Uh, they've actually have come together, okay, uh, to propose a radical plan to help Coffs um, Harbor Dolphin Park, a conservation park which has been hit hard by the impact of the coronavirus. They're working together to house uh, zoo dolphins in a um, sectioned off but uh, like semi-open sea closure off the um, Coffs Harbor Marina uh, instead of the zoo's, uh, instead of the zoo's pools. Uh, because this, uh, because the air has been hit so hard by COVID, it has caused closures and restrictions, and the three bottlenose dolphins need a place to be housed. Uh, since these dolphins have been raised in captivity, they are just they're not able to survive in the wild. You know, so um, moving them to the sea sanctuary will give them, which is awesome, is going to give them like ten times the living space, uh, and still allow people to view them in the marina, and will therefore you know continue to raise money. So this is just, I love this because it's just a perfect reminder of how in a crisis, how people come together, you know, how they come up with solutions to problems, especially in areas where there's very, again, these guys have very little that they agree upon. So even people with opposite views on animals well-being were able to come together because again, they both love, obviously they both love animals and want what's best for them. And so, so good on them, you know, especially uh, in this election year. Okay. I'm really happy to see the two groups working together. Uh, it's impressive. And so I was really happy to see that they're able to come together to create something again i think a really great situation all right really tough situation for these dolphins but a really great solution um to house and to get these um you know pets into even almost maybe even a better situation which is pretty incredible all right guys so thanks for keeping us up to date on animals in the news everyone when we come back we'll be talking with dr karens and learning all about internal medicine in the veterinary world stick around Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards healthcare for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. Veterinarians are always playing detective and piecing together information from owners. There are certain clues that owners give us that trigger immediate suspicion for a set of conditions. So when pet owners inform us that their pet is urinating a lot or drinking a lot, and they are also having a ravenous appetite and weight loss, one of the issues that goes straight to the top of the list of possible diagnosis is diabetes mellitus. This is one of the most common health conditions we see, especially in middle-aged cats and dogs. Diabetes mellitus is caused by a loss or dysfunction of the beta cells of the pancreas. There are two types of diabetes mellitus, and while this is an extremely serious condition with possible debilitating consequences, it is also a diagnosis that can be managed, and pets that have it can live a long, happy life. There's no one better to discuss this condition with us than today's expert guest, Dr. Kelly Cairns. Dr. Kelly Cairns graduated veterinary school from Colorado State University in 2004 completed a small animal rotating internship at Cornell in 2005, and completed a small animal internal medicine residency at The Ohio State University in 2008, at which time she obtained her diplomat status. Dr. Cairns enjoyed a rewarding clinical practice as an internist and medical director of multiple specialty ER clinic hospitals in Chicagoland prior to stepping into her current role at Pathway Vet Alliance which supports almost 400 veterinary hospitals across the country. Dr. Cairns has been with Pathway Vet Alliance since January 2018. As the National Director of Internal Medicine, Chair of the Pathway Specialty, Director Board, and Director of Specialty and Emergency Medicine, she lives in the Chicagoland area with her three children, husband, two cats, and a very sweet but poorly mannered Great Dane lab mix. When not engaged with her Pathway family, or corralling her personal family, she enjoys personal fitness running, the science of home brewing the perfect cup of coffee, and sleep, or the pursuit thereof. She wants you to know that she is excited about almost everything, so strike up a conversation. Welcome, Dr. Karens, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Now, I know it's been a little while since you were working directly with you know, patients and their pet families, but you have so much incredible experience and expertise to share with us. So I'm really, really excited to have you on here to talking about internal medicine. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, so I know that, again, it sounds like, so I know you went to John Hopkins University for your undergrad. Is Maryland, is that, is that where you grew up? No, I'm actually a little bit of a hybrid. I spent my really young years in New Jersey, but then I moved to Colorado, uh, and where I actually went to veterinary school after Johns Hopkins at Colorado State University. Oh, okay. So you know, so you just you, know, you just love. So when you were at Johns Hopkins, all right, did you know that's where you wanted to go into veterinary medicine? Because I think you were also a technician during that time, right, an undergrad. 
I was, yes. So I, like many veterinarians, decided early on I wanted to be a veterinarian, uh, but I actually approached it through the lens of really loving medicine. Even at the age of eight or nine, I knew I wanted to do something with medicine. And so I chose Johns Hopkins knowing they had one of the best human medical schools because I thought it would give me a really great foundation knowing I didn't want to be a human physician, but that I wanted to be a veterinarian. So then I also worked as a technician whilst I was in undergrad. Oh, very, very cool. All right. And so, uh, but then I don't know. So then your, is that your ties then to Rutgers? Cause you end up doing a year at Rutgers. Um, and it looked like it was like Rutgers and a little bit of dentistry or biomedical. Is that where you did like your master's or anything? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I've had a little bit of a circuitous career. So I uh, knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian, but was still trying to make the decision about where specifically in the profession I wanted to land. And so my initial intention was to get a PhD so that I could then work on some basic research to improve the veterinary space. So I did some graduate work at Rutgers, which actually was a combo program with the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey in concert with Rutgers. They kind of share a program. And I did that Mm. in preparation for then going to veterinary school to get my DBM or veterinary degree. Very cool. So then now, now I get your link to Colorado. All right. Cause then, so then you go to Colorado state university for, for vet school. And what was your experience like there? Oh, it was just transformative. It was spectacular. Um, it's one of those things they always say, you look back at certain key times in your life and it'll always have a nostalgia for you, but I still am very close friends with many folks that I went to vet school with. And now it's great because we get the opportunity to collaborate uh, with our patients and just trying to make the profession better even now, 20 years later. Very cool. And so then after, again, after that, after your, your vet school career, then you end up going into your, your internship and you went to Cornell um, to do your internship. Is that right? I did. Yes. So after veterinary, in the last year of veterinary school, I applied through something called the match, which is very similar to what human physicians will do. And you can choose which programs you might want to do one year postgraduate training, which is called an internship, and then you get selected. And so I was very grateful that I was selected to be one of Cornell's interns. So I spent a year as one of their house officers seeing patients and rotating through different services at that university. Okay. And is that where you knew you wanted to go straight into internal medicine or did you think about doing like surgery or anything else? Or is it always, you knew that internal medicine is where you wanted to go? I knew from the second year of vet school that I wanted to be an internist because what we do is we put puzzles together. It's like (laughs) analytic problem solving. So I already knew I wanted to be an internist if I was able to get accepted to a residency. So that was my goal during my internship year. And what was that residency? So that was at Ohio state, correct? So correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. How was that? That was amazing. Very intense, very intense. So that is a three-year program after your internship where you are seeing patients in the clinical hospital and you have board-certified internists that are your faculty who supervise you and support your learning process. And you also have students that you're responsible for teaching. So you're interacting with the public who have come to you with, you know, the pet parents with their beloved pets and you shepherd and steward uh, the care and the diagnosis and the treatment of those pets as you're training vet students and you are being trained yourself by your mentors or the faculty. A lot of time, <laughs> but it was a great time. <laughs> I mean, that's unbelievable. So that is a significant amount of a lot of extra schooling. And so what is that? Um, what is that? A, what is that like your um, to get board certified then? Um, what is the criteria then? Again, you obviously you hit on it with th- three years of residency, but is there anything else as far as exams and things like that? 
Great question. And yes, after your residency, there's a few other marks you have to hit before you become a diplomat or board certified in internal medicine. So there is a fairly uh, aggressive, intense, uh, pretty challenging exam you have to take two times. After the second year of your residency, you do what's called a general exam. And then after the third year of your residency or at the end of your residency, you do a second part, which is called your certifier, which is a two-day test. The first part is a full day. The second part is two full days. And you have to pass all of those exams. And you also have to have a primary authored publication that is in a peer-reviewed approved journal. So that is something you have to do is to write a manuscript, to do some sort of research in your area of expertise, and then have that accepted and published. And when you do all of that, you then obtain diplomat status in the Board of Internal Medicine or the College of Internal Medicine. My goodness, <laughs> that is incredible. And so, uh, and so then where I, uh, what was it like then to be, because uh, you are, I just want to make sure everybody understands that you are such an amazing teacher. So I met Dr. Karens when I did my internship at VCA. And so what was that experience like? I know like for me, <laughs> so just so you know, for Dr. Karens, I, when I was on <laughs> the internal medicine rotation portion at VCA, uh, Dr. Karens has a legendary, all right, uh, write-ups for all all of her cases, her <laughs> clients had basically went home with the most thorough understanding of what the patient's conditions were, what they came in for. It was unbelievable. And so what was it like kind of molding interns um, during that time? Yeah, and that was, uh, what a great experience. So uh, I, I really enjoyed my time at VCA Aurora as a clinical internist and getting to be on the intern committee and training interns, including you. It was very <laughs> great. Uh, great experience. Uh, one of the, the things that I really treasure about my job is the ability to grow, shape, mold, and train uh, those coming up in the profession. And so that was just one of my favorite things about my time there, was the ability to do that with their internship program. Excellent. Well, we're, we're, so very thankful. All of your interns are so thankful for you. Okay. And so what, what was the other, what was it like to work with other specialists, you know? So, cause when people, when people don't understand is I guess the, the amount of collaboration maybe that you guys do when you work at a specialty clinic and what was that like? Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I've experienced most folks that have pets in their family may not know, because why would they off the bat, is how uh, veterinarians really do collaborate with other veterinarians. And so when you go to a specialty hospital, there's a lot of behind the scenes collaboration, especially for someone like me who's an internist, because again, an internist is someone who specializes in internal diseases, gastrointestinal, respiratory, kidney, liver, endocrine diseases. And it's really a general specialty. So a lot of times I would find something where I would need to collaborate and ask the neurologist, this looks like a neurologic problem on examination. What do you think? Or ask the ophthalmologist or ask the surgeon something. And uh, that was really key to providing the patients with the really the best diagnosis and best ability to get the best treatment. Um, I really enjoyed that process. And I, I found it to really be important to do, do the best by the patient in that setting. Excellent. Excellent. And so now you're in this new role, right? Uh, with uh, Path Pathway Vet Alliance. Uh, and I think they're, you said, I think they're based in Texas though. Uh, can you tell us uh, a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. This has been just, again, another experience that I have been so grateful to be a part of for about the last three years. 
So Pathway Vet Alliance is uh, the fastest growing veterinary company in the country. We have over 400 hospitals nationwide and our home office, our support office is in Austin, Texas. We are veterinarian uh, run. Our CEO, Dr. Stephen Hadley is a veterinarian. And what we do is we partner with veterinary hospitals to give support on the back end. So I always joke, um, we love that nobody knows who we are because that's not <laughs> our intention. So, yeah. you know, a hospital who partners with us will still enjoy their name, their culture, everything that makes them great, great. And then we provide additional resources on the back end. So for me, it's been a really powerful opportunity to do the things that I really love, which is to continue to support, to grow, to nurture the new folks coming up in the vet space, and to really help many hospitals, not just one hospital. So as much as I absolutely love helping pet parents and patients, and I, and I do miss that, Dr. Contreras, I will share with you that it's been really amazing for me to contribute to supporting hundreds of amazing veterinarians and technicians and front desk staff that are really the heroes on the front line at all the hospitals that I support as one of the directors of specialty for Pathway. Uh, so I have 15 hospitals that I directly support. And then the other thing is I am very, very grateful to serve as our national director of internal medicine to shepherd the medical quality and community for all the internists in our company across the country. Yeah. I, I mean, Dr. Karens, I love that you, yeah, and you've always just been so committed to helping others. Again, your impact is reaching a much more broader audience. I know how much you love helping your interns, but now you're also helping your fellow internal medicine <laughs> colleagues as well as other specialties. And so I absolutely love it. And I know you are going to be just continue to just be incredible with that. And so um, can you describe though to, to owners too about how, you know, can you kind of define internal medicine um, to the sure. you know, pet owners? Sure. Yes. So it's a uh somewhat similar to, I always use the human medical analogy because most humans obviously are more familiar with that. So a um, veterinary internist is the equivalent of a human general internist, meaning if your regular general doctor as a human or your general practitioner as a veterinarian thinks there's something wrong with most of the internal body systems, they would refer you to an internist. And so uh, again, my internist will cover respiratory diseases, diseases of the gastrointestinal tract, so vomiting, diarrhea, diseases of the kidney or the lower urinary tract, diseases of the endocrine system, so thyroid problems, diabetes, uh, other endocrine conditions. And then uh, we do have a few subsets of internal medicine that are separate specialties. So if you have a heart problem, you would see a cardiologist. If you have a neurologic problem, you'd see a neurologist. And if you have a cancer problem, you'd see an oncologist. Anything else that's internal medicine of any other organ system in the body would be your general internist like me. Nice. Did you have a favorite organ system that you would like to, to treat or, or, or was it all of them? It's so hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, every facet of internal medicine as a clinical internist. I do have a penchant for endocrine diseases and infectious diseases uh, and a little penchant for cat medicine because they are not small dogs. <laughs> you may remember that from VCA Aurora, <laughs> oh, yeah, but I truly, truly do enjoy all aspects of the discipline. Now, uh, I also love to kind of play with toys, um, you know, like ultrasound and little things like that. We actually had an ultrasound course that we actually did together um, in Texas. I don't know if you remember a long, long time ago. <laughs> right? And so uh, that sound echoed. But when is that something do you internists use a lot of other advanced diagnostic tools to, to help them? 
Yeah, great question. So in addition to ultrasound, and I do remember that course, <laughs> um, in addition to doing uh, diagnostic ultrasounds, internists are our kind of, uh, I guess, uh, what's in our toolkit, like what do we wear around all the time, it would be what's called scoping or endoscopy. So basically, uh, if anything that we can put a camera and a small tube in to do something, we will. So we will do, and this is exactly like a human who say has chronic vomiting, diarrhea, colitis, will have a colonoscopy or an upper GI study. We do the same thing in dogs and cats. We can also, what's really cool is internists love when we can actually fix something because sometimes mm -hmm. our diseases are chronic. We can actually remove foreign material or foreign bodies that are in the stomach of a dog or a cat using a scope and avoiding the need for surgery. We will also put scopes down into the respiratory tree where we can look at the trachea or the windpipe or down into the lungs if we need to get a sample for something like a bronchitis or an asthma. And we'll also put scopes in the urinary tract. So we'll oftentimes do what's called a cystoscopy where we're looking at the urethra and inside the urinary bladder. Sometimes we can even use special tools like lasers and grabbers to break down and remove stones in the urinary bladder, again, removing the need or negating the need for surgery. Very so cool. That's pretty much, that's our fancy. If you want to talk fancy <laughs> with an internist, um, and it does get fancier. There's some real cool stuff we're doing now with what's called interventional radiology, where we're doing stents. Like folks will get an artery stented open to hold it open. Internists can stent or open a windpipe for a dog with a collapsing windpipe. We could do the same thing for a urethra if there's a urinary blockage. Oh, very cool. My gosh. And so, um, and so what do you, do you have like diseases you think you, you would see most commonly, um, at your practice or at the, at the practices you were at? Sure. So it's not just one or two, it's probably, you know, I can count on two hands. Cause again, we do treat diseases <laughs> in many organ yeah. systems. Um, I would say that kidney disease, especially chronic kidney disease, especially in cats, very, very common, uh, lower urinary tract symptoms, blockages, or urinary tract infections. Endocrine diseases, very common. So uh, diabetes mellitus, very, very common. Another endocrine disease called Cushing's, very common. Um, th uh, thyroid, either low or high functioning, which is another endocrine disorder, very common. Mm -hmm. uh, chronic liver conditions, very common. And so when you see a lot, of, yeah, obviously so many pets that you've seen over the years, what would you say to owners is probably be the most avoidable medical issues that maybe you would see in cats and dogs? Yeah, that's a great question. So right off the bat, two of the things that come to mind are problems associated with being obese or overweight, because that's very controllable, as well as problems associated with having very bad dental disease, because again, it's controllable. So with obesity, we do see that that decreases quality of life in animals just like humans. And it's not only just the inability to run or maybe even exercise intolerance, fatigue, a decreased quality of life, but obesity does contribute or cause, contribute to or cause a lot of medical conditions. So it actually, can you know lead to um, some 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 actual medical problems uh, that that we we could target by by having an optimal weight and dental disease for certain can be painful to animals can lead to infections and those are things that we can partner with our pet parents to just nip it in the bud you know by controlling the caloric intake making sure the food is high quality with proper proper nutritional breakdown and as far as the teeth obviously the diligent you know dental uh, brushing and exams by the regular veterinarian to do cleanings uh frequently excellent excellent so so we focus now that so since Internal medicine focuses on such a huge variety of topics and diseases so that we can hone it down for today. 
Diabetes is something I see quite often. And since I went to one of your CEs on diabetes, uh, again, and again, since I still have your lecture notes on the diabetes, on diabetes, I would love for my listeners to hear more about from your expertise. What are some of the more common signs that you see with diabetes? Great question. Diabetes is one of the cardinal diseases that is going to frequently cause increased thirst and urination and a really ravenous appetite. But what's interesting about it is that the patient will not be gaining weight in the face of the ravenous appetite. In fact, frequently they'll be losing weight despite eating a ton. Awesome. Awesome. And so, um, so how do you treat patients that appear clinically, that appear uh, clinically to appear to have diabetes, you know, drinking a lot, urinating a lot, but then when you do their blood work, it almost, again, it just falls into that gray area. And I know, I guess there can be some pre-diabetics. And so how do you go about maybe, maybe treating those patients? Sure. So if I can, let me back up a little and just very quick hit the high notes to be sure that all the pet parents out there understand what we're talking about in terms of what causes diabetes. So essentially, it's either a uh, decreased amount of a hormone called insulin or the inability of the body to use the insulin that is there. And so what happens is insulin normally takes all the sugar in your blood and allows it to go into the cells so your body can use the glucose or the sugar for energy. And so if you don't have that hormone, you can't do that. So you basically can't use the the nutrition or the energy or the sugar in the food that you're eating. Okay. So which is why you are ravenous because you feel like you're starving because you're not able to use that energy. Okay. But you're kind of just wasting it out and all that sugar to make it real quick and simple makes you real thirsty. <laughs> we'll kind of leave it at that. Okay. Yep. Um, and so when I have a patient where uh, the classic, the classic would be that we do blood work and the blood sugar is off the chart high and there's just a ton of sugar in the urine and the patient really clinically is acting like they're diabetic, increased thirst, urination, uh, and appetite and losing weight. And then those patients, we can uh, start on uh, traditional treatments, which would involve insulin and a diet change and some lifestyle modifications. To your point, Dr. Contreras, if it seems like it's a gray zone, the first thing I'm doing as an internist is to follow up with some additional testing, which gives me more data or information on what's been happening with that patient for the prior few weeks or sometimes even few months. One of the things that we know about blood sugar is that sometimes it can spike up high when a patient is stressed, quote unquote, or excited. This stereotypically is seen more commonly in cats than dogs but it can happen with dogs of certain temperaments. So we do have specialized tests in our arsenal, in our toolkit that we can run that allow us to assess the average blood sugar over the prior few weeks. When the cat or the dog has been at home, chilling out, super relaxed, if that test comes back high, we know this is a chronic state of high sugar. Uh, and so that's the first thing that um, I would, would do. Um, it is rare, in my opinion, to see a patient that is um, really gray zone borderline where it doesn't declare itself what it needs to do, but life is not perfect. In those rare instances, I'm recommending a recheck, maybe even the following week or following two weeks to get another piece of data or information to allow me to make a decision. Uh, and I'll take a pause in a moment, but before I do, I will share that there are certainly certain things that will contribute to a patient becoming diabetic, that when we talk about what things can we do for a pre-diabetic, we can certainly un unpack that, I guess, in a moment. 
Okay, excellent. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I would love to go over like an example. Like, so yeah. I have, you know, uh, this 10 year old, 10 year old female spade Bichon, newly diagnosed diabetic, again, all the clinical signs, PUPD, uh, and then it has a blood sugar of, you know, over 500, you know, has a lot of glucose, four plus glucose in the urine. And so once you have that diagnosed yeah. patient, you know, uh, what's, what do you, what do you help as far as telling the owner, as far as, you know, the best way to get this pet regulated in this, in that case? Yes. Insulin. <laughs> <laughs> insulin. Uh, so, uh, I will, there's a couple in broad strokes, there's a couple, a couple big uh, types of diabetes. There's your classic type one, where you literally just don't make the insulin. And then there's what we call type two, which is the type that can be more common in people, which can be associated with an insulin resistance, oftentimes maybe due to being obese or other risk factors. For our animals, they can get either type as well, but regardless of the type, once they are diabetic, my experience, and I think a lot of internists would agree with this, is that the, what you need in that moment is insulin. <laughs> so uh, yes, and so so really, and this does to get back to your uh, recollection of me when we worked together when you were my intern, uh, client education and synergy and collaboration with that pet parent is key to success because we are partners in the care of that precious family member so it's there's a large client education piece that comes with this uh, in terms of understanding the commitment of what is going to be needed to give that insulin twice a day and the rechecks that are going to be needed to monitor the sugars and other parameters moving forward uh, it's it's totally doable but my one of my jobs is to advocate for what is going to be the best way to accomplish our mutual goals based upon the lifestyle and the uh, options for that specific family, you know, based upon their work schedule, how busy they are, the time in their day. So I try to customize the approach for what's going to work with that family, because if it's not implementable, it can't be successful. Absolutely. And so how, so once you get them on the insulin, um, hopefully if they're doing well with it, uh, yep. what do you tell them about the diet? Um, what type of right. diet, how, how, how often to feed them and those type of things? Yeah. And that's diet is so important here. So what we, what I say with diabetes is that, uh, the most important thing is that they eat uh, because we do recognize that if a patient is not eating at all, first of all, that's a symptom, that's a sign that something's going wrong with the diabetes because most mm -hmm. diabetics enjoy to eat. Um, but also we know that if a patient doesn't eat, then when you give them their normal dose of insulin, if they haven't eaten, their blood sugar can drop actually too low sometimes. So it's most important we find a diet they will eat. Now, I I have aggressive goals, so I would also like them to eat the right diet for their diabetes. And so this is where I personally have a different plan for dogs versus cats. Uh, with dogs, I tend to recommend a, uh, and there's many diets on the market from excellent commercial vendors uh, that exist that, again, one is not inherently better than the other. They are different. And so depending upon the patient, we partner together. But they, for dogs, it tends to be a, mo uh, a modified fiber content, which can actually uh, slow down and regulate the absorption of sugar from the intestines. Uh, with cats, I tend to focus on diets that are actually low in carbohydrate, uh, be, uh, which is it tends to be more, more and higher in protein, which tends to be more important for cats because cats have a very different metabolism than dogs. So as far as the diet, 
I actually will recommend a diet change pretty shortly after they're diagnosed with diabetes. However, I personally don't recommend that my moms and dads start that new diet the same day they start the insulin because it's a lot of change for their pets. And I don't want to do anything that could risk the pet not wanting to eat while we're starting insulin therapy. So typically on my first recheck, maybe a week after they've started insulin, I'll say, hey, let's slowly switch over to this new diet. And long-term diet is a powerful tool, powerful tool to control the diabetes. Excellent. Excellent. I love all right, that you talked about that basically cats are not small dogs. So that was excellent to know that there is such a big difference between those two. That was absolutely wonderful. So can you go into a little bit more about maybe the difference um, is differences that we see in our cats versus our dogs when we talk about diabetes and, and even like the obese, the obese kitty cats that we, a lot of times we see with this condition? Sure. Yeah. Cause this is just a great example of cats, not small dogs. So uh, cat, cats are stereotypically more likely to be what, what I call the fatty Arbuckle type two diabetic. So <laughs> you're big giant or you're laughing cause you see them all the time. All you're the time. amazing 25 pound lovable mm -hmm. orange tabby cat. Uh, and so cats are more likely to get that type two where they're uh, really overweight and cats. And this is an interesting bit of trivia for everybody. Cats are a desert species. And so they are biologically in their body with their, all of their hormones and all of their enzymes, they are adapted to and, and used to from being a desert species in Egypt, you know, centuries ago, eating like a mouse once a week. So they're naturally adapted to tolerating a fast. And so they, therefore, uh, they actually don't do well with these big, huge kind of, you know, we call it carb junkies. So, you know, all the carbohydrates in, you know, dry food diets, they, their body just doesn't handle that well. It just doesn't do well by them. And so you wind up with this big, huge fat cat that develops insulin resistance and becomes diabetic. And so kitties more so than dogs, because of this trait, they are statistically more likely to be what we call a fragile or a brittle diabetic. And that means cats stereotypically more than dogs need for insulin can vary. So over the course of my clinical career, uh, and I do still have a couple patients that I, that I see, and I'm thinking of one in particular that I still am actively um, helping to collaborate with, with their primary veterinarian, this kitty sometimes needs insulin and sometimes doesn't. That's what we call a brittle diabetic. So if you have a fat cat that you start feeding this high protein, a uh, little bit of fiber, low carbohydrate diet, and it loses a bunch of weight and becomes fit, the need for insulin can dissipate. Uh, so that is very different than dogs. Now, don't get me wrong. It is still very important to try to achieve optimum weight for an obese dog who is diabetic, and that can definitely improve the regulation of their diabetes. But in my experience, a dog, once they need insulin, is more likely to need insulin forever. Nice. Okay. Excellent. And so in your opinion, what are some of the most common pitfalls in diabetic management? Sure. So here's the good news. The vast majority of diabetic dogs and cats are going to live a nice long life and, you know, hopefully a million years from now, pass away from something totally unrelated. It is a very manageable disease. Having said that, it is not a curable disease and it can be a frustrating disease. There is a lot of monitoring that is needed and any other illness or problem in the body will upset regulation of diabetes. I tell my clients, I used to say all the time in my big, you know, again, client education, collaboration, you know, speech in the beginning, you know, 
any other disease. Everything else is the enemy of insulin. So if you have an animal that's well-regulated and they get a urinary tract infection or another endocrine condition or a de dental, you know, bad dental inflammation, any other problem is going to what's called dysregulate or muck up the regulation of your diabetes. So I would say one pitfall is just that I try, my, one of my goals is always to meet a family's expectation by being, being very honest and providing the information they need to allow us to effectively partner. So I don't put rose colored glasses on things. I say, we're in it for the long haul and we got this together. Just know that it can be going great and we can hit a little setback and we'll get it going well again. So that, that's the first thing. It's the, it's the client education piece. The second thing is that there are a lot of things involved in getting the insulin into the animal's body and ensuring that it's working. And so um, there's a, what I do, again, it gets back to the client communication is there's a huge education session. I will engage my technicians uh, to, to work with the clients on this. We have to be really sure. I've had a lot of times where there's been a pitfall or a problem because the insulin wasn't stored appropriately. It wasn't mixed appropriately. Um, the insulin expired or the insulin was drawn up wrong or it was uh, given wrong wrong by a well-intentioned family member who was taking over care from the person who typically does it. Uh, and so those things we have to be very fastidious to monitor. So that's, uh, that's been another big bucket of category that I would say I've experienced has sometimes caused potholes. Okay, excellent. And so uh, what are some common comorbidities or some common other diseases that we see with diabetes? Great. So a lot of other endocrine conditions can exist with diabetes and also make it harder to regulate the diabetes. So for cats, hyperthyroidism or high functioning thyroid. For dogs, more than cats, although cats do get this rarely, a condition called Cushing's, which is excessive secretion of hormones like cortisol or stress hormones from the adrenal glands. And then there's some other hormones that you would think of as adrenaline or the fight or flight excitement hormone. Sometimes the adrenal glands can make too many of those hormones. And lastly, you'll notice a theme here. Another hormone called growth hormone can be secreted excessively, more commonly in cats than dogs. Uh, so concurrent endocrine conditions, in my experience, uh, can occur with diabetes and complicate the management of the diabetes. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Karens, I cannot thank you enough for that unbelievably great interview, overview of diabetes. You are extremely brilliant. Uh, it has been so great, okay, just to catch up with you, to talk with you about diabetes and internal medicine. You have been such an amazing mentor to me and so many other veterinarians. And we cannot thank you enough for your dedication uh, to this field and our growth. Uh, honestly, again, uh, my, when I was talking to my wife, she said, Karen's cares. And she'd absolutely, I absolutely, she does. Okay. <laughs> and it shows, okay. You are unbelievably passionate. You are just, again, you care so much about animals, their pet families, your interns. And again, we are just so, so thankful for you. We all love you to death. All right. And I just thank you so much for being on my show today. We really, really appreciate it. Madrine, it's been my absolute pleasure. And I will also share back at you that your contribution to the vet space and your community, because uh, we do happen to live in an area uh, that's, you know, some, we live in this, a similar area to one another. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm real privileged to uh, see your growth and uh, everything you're doing for the community and the pet parents in the vet space. So right back at you. Thank you so much. All of your listeners should uh, know what a heart of gold you have and you're making a difference. So thank you so much for I, having me. I really me on appreciate that. It means a lot, Dr. Karen. Thank you so much. Okay, when we get back. I'll Become our friend on Facebook. Week. Post your Stick thoughts around. about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The Vet Pros Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards healthcare for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales. Welcome back to Healthy Tales. It's time for our product of the week. Heartworm disease is diagnosed in over 100,000 dogs each year in the United States. This is so frustrating because it's completely preventable. Dogs and cats develop heartworm disease from an infected mosquito injecting them with the disease. Mosquitoes only become infected when they take the blood meal from a dog that's already infected with heartworm disease. This is why it's so important for all pets to be on preventative so they aren't infecting mosquitoes that will then spread the disease further. One mosquito can infect so many dogs. One dog can come in contact with thousands of mosquitoes in a year, and thus if that pet has heartworm disease, he's giving it to all those mosquitoes that bite him. One infected mosquito can bite multiple dogs in a day, and even if a mosquito only lives for two to four weeks, that is a lot of pets that can get infected. Heartworm disease is one of the most common infectious diseases affecting our pets. Each year, the number of cases continues to increase despite our attempts to inspire owners to prevent such a disease. Heartworm disease can be preventable if a pet is on proper medication. And the best medication to prevent heartworm disease is the one that gets into the pet. So if you haven't guessed it by now, today's product of the week is heartworm prevention. There are a lot of great products on the market. Revolution, HeartGuard, TriHeart, IverHeart, all of them do an amazing job to help prevent heartworm disease. But my favorite product for heartworm prevention is ProHeart 12. The reason? Because it's a one-time injection to protect our dogs for a whole year. And pet owners don't have to remember to give it. And for kitty cats, I'd probably have to go with Revolution because it does both fleas, ticks, and prevents heartworm disease. 
Let's help protect the pets we love, get them tested and on heartworm prevention so they don't have to go through the grueling process of being treated for heartworm disease. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my amazing co-hosts, Elaine, Kyle, and Tim, and to my expert guest, Dr. Kelly Cairns. I want to thank you, our amazing listeners, for your support, and please continue to give us feedback at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com or rate us on iTunes. We hope you join us for our next episode where we give you more great tips and help you unleash your pet parenting power. Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.